Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8 and verse 8, but let's read the context starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. May all who have ears to hear, hear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Let's pray. Our God and Father, We want to glorify your name this morning. Help us to do that, Lord. You are the great shepherd. Lead us all as your sheep into the pastures of your word that we might feed and that we might lie down satisfied in you. Thank you for this gathering and for your presence with us. Help us to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans chapter 8 is a a tremendous chapter, one of the favorites of all in the, really, the entire Bible, because it is a chapter of great comfort for the people of God. It is a chapter that deals with the super invincibility of the people of God, not because of anything in themselves, but because of the super invincibility of the God who is for us and no longer against us. This is a chapter where the people of God lower their buckets into the deep wells of the Word of God and they draw up the water of life which satisfies the soul, which alone can quench the thirst that we have for righteousness. We've learned, I think, so far some important things in chapter 8. The the premise of the comfort is that there is no longer even the least bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus That sentence of death that was upon our heads, the the guilt and the crimes that were leveled against us rightfully by the Lord have all been removed. They've been really satisfied completely in the death of Christ at Calvary. That's why we want to remember Calvary constantly. Lead me to Calvary that we might remember these wonderful truths There is therefore now no condemnation, not even the least bit, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Unless you be one who detracts from the glory of God and perhaps builds yourself up in a measure of glory, recognize what the the Word says. It is not you who place yourself in this position of no condemnation. It is the Spirit 
of life in Christ Jesus who has rescued you, freed you, delivered you from the governing power of sin and death which used to hold sway over your life in an absolute sense. You and I used to be slaves of sin. Those who were bound in our wills to do nothing but obey the lust of our flesh. But we have been freed by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the blessed third person of the Trinity. He has freed us and He has placed us into Christ. He has grafted us into Christ. He has united us to Christ supernaturally so that we are in Him and stand in Him by virtue of the work of God and not our own. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, our own flesh, we were unable to keep the law ourselves. God did by sending His own Son, His only Son, His beloved Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not as a sinner, He was born sinless and He lived a sinless life. But He came wrapping Himself in the tent, the tabernacle of humanity, of flesh, so that He might stand in our place as our perfect representative and lay down His life willingly for you and for me, His enemies. What a love. What a love of God that we are learning about. He came as the perfect sacrifice for sin and He condemned that which condemned us, our sin. He took it out of the way. All of the accusations that were lawfully leveled against us. He took them away and He nailed them to His cross. Every one of them. Not just your past sins, but your present and all your future sins that you have yet to commit. Praise the Lord. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And He did this not only that we would stand forgiven and then return to our old lifestyle, but that the righteousness of the law the, the very holiness, the justice, and the goodness of God, His character might be filled up in us who do not walk according to the flesh, the old way of life, the natural man, but according to the Spirit. Because we now have our being in the Spirit. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. He is setting before us, Paul, and really the Holy Spirit through Paul, Two kinds of people, those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Those are the only two kinds of people in this whole world. That's the only distinction that God makes and that He cares about. Are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? Are you dead or are you alive, spiritually speaking? Are you condemned or are you justified? That's the question. And He says, Here are some tests so that you can answer that question for yourself. Those who live according to the flesh muse on the things of the flesh. Their mindedness, what they think about, what they're drawn to as the pattern of their lives, the inclination of their hearts will tell them if they're in the flesh because they're drawn to those things. And conversely, if you are in the Spirit, your mindedness is for the things of the Spirit of God. You have a heavenly mindset that He's given you. Your love is to muse on Him. To look, just to gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. To stand in awe of Him. And then he says, 
The carnal mind is deaf. That mind of the flesh, the reason why it loves to muse on the things of the flesh is because it's spiritually dead. It has no life in it. And the reason why you, if you are of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, have the Spirit, why your mindset is of the Spirit is because you've been brought to life. And God has made peace with you through the blood of His cross. You have received the message of peace, the gospel. Your only hope of salvation is not in your righteousness in the least, but is in the righteousness of Christ. You've embraced that message, and now God has called you to be a peacemaker among men. You've been brought to life and have peace. You're no longer at war with God. But those who are still in the flesh... Their mind is one that is actually enmity against God. It is hostility toward God. It doesn't just think hostile thoughts once in a while. Every thought that flows from this mind hates God, is at war with God. And we looked at that last week in detail. It is not subject to the law of God. It will not line itself up and submit itself to the Word of God. It hates the law of God. It loves itself and pursues its own passions and pleasures apart from God. And then Paul says this, verse 8, and this is what brings us to where we are this morning. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So then, so Paul is making a concluding remark here. Those who are in the flesh, those who are still natural people, earthly people, those who are spiritually dead and outside of Christ, those who still obey sin as the pattern of their lives and who really love darkness, who are in rebellion against God, who will not yield to the knowledge of the truth of God, but instead continue to lift up their own ideas and imaginations against the knowledge of God. That person cannot please God. Is it any wonder? He's at war with God. He has no interest in the things of God. He cannot please God. That word means to accommodate oneself to the desires, the interests of another. In this case, the God of heaven and earth. The God of this word that we're reading. It means to be agreeable to Him and to strive to align ourselves with Him. This is speaking of the desire of God, His will. This is speaking of what He delights in or His loves. In other words, to please God is to pursue what is important to God. To pursue what's important to God. And that's a hard attitude. It starts in the heart always. It's to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, if you want to boil it down. The natural man has no ability to please God. He cannot. In fact, it's the same word that Paul used in verse 7 with regard to not being subject to the law, nor indeed can be subject to it, not able to, no power to be subject to. Here he says the same thing. The natural man has no power, no ability, and frankly, no interest in pleasing God. Here's how Jesus, our Lord Jesus, described this inability of sinful man to please God. He said this in John 3 to Nicodemus. You'll, I'm sure, be familiar with these words. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that's another way of saying born again, those who have been washed by the water of the Word of God and by the Spirit, and those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, unless that has happened to you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you cannot see the kingdom of God and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Friends, how can a blind person who cannot see what matters to God do what pleases him? How can uh, the person who is uh, blocked and unable to approach the Lord to hear what matters to him please him? He can't. And the Lord underscores this in that same conversation with Nicodemus when he said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is an infinite chasm, a gap between the realm of the flesh and the realm of the Spirit, and nothing man can do can get himself from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the Spirit. He is blind and he is blocked, and because of this he has no interest in pleasing God. His mind is set directly opposed to God. He is at an animosity with God. Everything that he thinks, everything that he is, everything that he loves and does is diametrically opposed and in total defiance to the God of Scripture. And if that weren't enough, all of this is further compounded by the fact that God's wrath abides on that man, on that woman, on that child on that sinner. The reason the natural person cannot see or enter the kingdom is because God's wrath is on them, blinding him, preventing him from re-entering the the presence, which we remember from the Genesis account when man was thrust out of the garden and blocked from re-entering. The cherubim being there with that flaming sword turning every which way, preventing man from re-entering the presence of God. So the wrath of God is revealed. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. It is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's a wrath that abandons man to the lust of his own sinful heart to pursue those things which are not fitting, which are not appropriate, which are not proper. The Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs 3 verse 32. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The perverse person. We read that at first reading and we think of somebody who might be morally perverted, sexually immoral, deviant. That's not what the word means. When he talks about the perverse person, he refers to one who has willfully departed and gone out of the way of truth. Out of the way of what is right toward that which is evil and wrong. Willfully. He embraces that. He's gone astray. It's just another way of saying a sinner, one who has missed the mark, willfully missing the mark. The perverse person, the sinner, is an abomination to the Lord. A disgusting thing, that which God hates. I want you to notice, He doesn't just hate the sin, but He hates the sinner. The sinner is who He condemns to hell forever who will not repent. 
So this is really a double impossibility that we have here. He who is in the flesh cannot please God. He has no power to do it in in and of himself. He's blinded from seeing the kingdom. He's prevented from entering the kingdom. And God is actively at war with him. To To tell the natural person that he must love God and please him is like telling a person to just start flying like a bird without any helps. Just change your nature and do something else. It's ridiculous. It's an impossibility. Apart from the work of grace of the Lord Jesus. You see, but that's exactly what must happen to each one of us in order to please God. How can any of us come to love what God loves Come to do what God loves when we have a heart that is hardened against God and rebellious toward God. Thank God that what is impossible with men is possible with God. A miracle needs to happen, brothers and sisters, right? A new heart must be given, which gives us new affections, new desires. We must be born again. We must become new creations in Christ. The answer that Paul gives in verse 9 of Romans 8 is, well, if you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, you must be raised up from the realm of the flesh and placed into the realm of the Spirit by the work of the Spirit. That's a work of grace. That's the impossibility that must become possible. See, Christian Christianity, becoming a Christian, is not just a matter of deciding to follow Jesus. It's not just a matter of agreeing with a a set of principles in the text that you now are going to live your life by. Christianity is not a set of teachings, but a total transformation of the heart of an individual. You must become new. You must become who you are not. You must become a child of God. That is what's required for a person to please God. So why does Paul bring out this point here in the text? I think we have to remember that the Word of God always functions like a two-edged sword. This is Hebrews 4.12. The the Word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God, when it goes forth, cuts two ways. It holds forth both blessings and curses simultaneously. It is to the wicked an admonishment, a warning to turn from your wicked ways, to repent, lest you die eternally. But it's also an encouragement to the righteous who have genuine faith. It may be a weak faith. They may be downcast and faint-hearted, but the Lord is strengthening the faith of His people through His Word. So He's admonishing the wicked and He's encouraging the righteous at the same time. Hmm. And really admonishing the righteous to continue to be righteous and stay on that path. So, really, we have a wake-up call here for the wicked, those who are in the flesh. 
And, and I think he does this because there are many who think that they please God, who really don't. There are many who believe that they are living a life that is pleasing to God, but in reality they are self-deceived. We could style these the religious people, the moralists, the people who would identify as God's people, but who in point of fact don't know him. And to them, this is a wake-up call. What is it that the average person, average religious person, would say pleases God? If, if you were to poll a group of such people, what would be some of the answers you might receive? Well, I would venture to guess that some of the answers would be the following. Living a good life, quote-unquote, good life, by which they might mean taking care of one's family, um, doing well, dealing honestly in one's occupation or career, uh, in personal relations with other people. They might bring up religious activities like giving sacrificially to God, giving to the church, whether it's time or money or effort, giving to various good causes, praying, going to church, attending church, teaching others the Bible even, and of course, seeking to keep the commandments. All of these things you would hear, I believe, from religious people who think that they can please God, and, and that these are the things that please God. And Paul has been addressing a group of people in this study of Romans who believed that they were doing just that, and th those were the Jews. Those were the Jews. They believed that they were pleasing to God because they were the people of God. They were Abraham's children. They were circumcised. They had the privilege of the law, and they were instructed out of the law, and they instructed others out of the law. And you remember in Romans chapter 2, Paul puts this question to that person, the, to the Jew who, who makes his boast in God and in the law. And he says, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Do you recognize that you are dishonoring God by continually breaking the law even though you boast in it? Are you really pleasing God? You certainly could not fault the Jews for their zeal for God. But their zeal was a zeal that was grounded in ignorance. They didn't know God truly. Jesus warned of this in John 16, verse 2. He said, They, referring to the Jews, will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. They believe that they're serving God with all their heart. They have a genuine zeal but it's a zeal that is rooted in ignorance. They don't know the true God. The God that they serve is a God of their imagination. And with Him, they believe that they are pleasing Him. Paul, you remember, acknowledged the very same thing about himself. As a converted person looking back on his pre-converted life, when he said that he was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Zealous to keep up the traditions. A, a zeal that drove him to persecute the church. But he also said that he did it ignorantly in unbelief. He was a highly religious man, but he had a spiritual blindness so that he could not see nor enter the kingdom of God until he was born again. The religious self-deceived don't know God. They are in the flesh. They are able to please the God of their imagination, which is another way of saying they please themselves. 
but they don't please the God of the Bible. So on the one hand, this text serves, I believe, as a warning to the wicked. If you think that you're pleasing God, but you walk according to the flesh, you set your mind on the things of the flesh, your heart is drawn to sin, and you love this world, you love yourself, then you're not pleasing God as you think, and you're actually self-deceived. Repent. Repent. Hear the word of the Lord today, because today may be the day of salvation for you. But the word also cuts the other way for the true people of God. And it does so in this way. It's a a comfort that comes by way of paradox. You see, those who are spiritually alive are those who alone feel the burden and the conviction of their own sin that we learned about in Romans chapter 7. They are the ones who develop this wretched man theology because they understand that they are totally undone and sinful before a holy God, that they have been rebels against God and have not pleased Him and deserve His wrath, deserve hell, and they repent. And as they grow in grace, the conviction of sin continues to grow. And so they feel a condemnation. And so the Lord reminds them and us, you're not condemned. If you are in Christ, and here's how you know that, what we just talked about, then you're not condemned. So he comforts his people in such an interesting way. He first wounds us, and he does that just by showing us our true condition as he sees us as sinners. He wounds us. He crushes our hearts. And then he binds us up and he heals us by pointing us to the salve the balm of Gilead, the Lord Jesus Christ. He comforts his people also by illustrating a contrast, right? As we've been looking at here. Life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. Those who are dead, those who are alive. Those who are earthly minded, those who are heavenly minded. Those who cannot please God, those who can and do please God. And he places these before us really as a diagnostic so that we would know, brothers and sisters, remember, this is a book and a chapter that brings comfort to God's people, that we would know with certainty that we are the children of God and not the children of the flesh and the children of the devil. And with respect to this question of pleasing God, I think it's important to understand what it is that pleases God. Why? Because here's the idea. If you know what pleases God, and if you understand that your desires and your pattern of life are aligning more and more with what pleases God, then you know that you are a child of God and one who does please God. That is a tremendous comfort for the people of God to remind it, you're not only not condemned, but you are actively pleasing God. Now, we... Let's ask this question. What is it that pleases God? What is it that pleases God? And I'd like to spend some time with you today to think about this. Um, We've seen several examples already in the text in chapters 6 through 8 of what God's will is for his people, that which pleases him. Things like turning from sin, uh, holiness, walking in newness of life. Dying to the law through the body of Christ that we might be married to the risen Christ and bear good fruit to Him. Serving, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. 
being free from the tyranny of sin, fulfilling the righteousness of the law, actually having that righteousness fulfilled in us according to the Spirit, musing and thinking on the things of the Spirit, which is life and peace, and subjecting oneself to the law of God. All of these things are things that please God. But today what I'd like to do is help synthesize really what Scripture says in its entirety and this is a huge topic. I mean, when you talk about what, what it means to please God, the whole Bible reveals the will of God and what pleases Him and what does not. So that's not a possible task to do in one message. But what I'd like to do is at least give us a couple of categories, three specifically, as hooks upon which we can hang all of this doctrine that we are going to read and study together and that you are studying in your own personal time just to organize our thinking. And I'd like you to test this with me. Be like the Bereans. Test and see if these things are so. So I would offer three things that please God. Three things. The first is this. God alone pleases God. God alone pleases God. And I'd like to start in our thinking together from the perspective of eternity. And we get this perspective from the Lord Jesus in John 17, don't we, in his high priestly prayer? When he says this in verse 5 of John 17, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Christ is now speaking of a glory that was shared with the Father before anything was created. This is in eternity. When the Father was demonstrating all his pleasure in his Son, and the Son his pleasure in the Father, and both their pleasure in the Spirit, a mutual blessing and satisfaction in the persons of God, the Godhead. God is not one who ever needed anything because of this truth. He was perfectly satisfied in himself, in communion, in fellowship, in, in love and enjoyment of the Godhead. God is satisfied with God. He always has been. He, he never needed to create anything. Not angels, certainly not us. But this is all grace that he has created us and called us back to himself that we might enjoy the pleasures of God forevermore. It's just another way of saying salvation. As we now come into space and time, we have the prophecy of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, this one who was to come, the one in whom God has always delighted. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42 concerning this focus of God's delight. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is the elect one of God who received the fullness of the Spirit of God, the approval, the blessing, the power of God to glorify the Father in the world. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hear this theme repeated as we observe the life of our Lord Jesus, don't we? When we come to his baptism, we hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And again, at his transfiguration, when he has Peter and James and John with him on the mountain, and he discloses his glory, he unveils something of this that was veiled in by his tent, by his 
flesh of the glory of God, and a voice comes again. A bright cloud overshadows them, and suddenly a voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Hear the One in whom my soul delights. This is the one who takes all of the good pleasure of God. The focal point of God's good pleasure is in the Son, the Lord Jesus. And as you might expect, the Son reciprocates that same delight in the Father. John 8, 29, Jesus speaking, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Always. He said in John 6:38, for I have not, excuse me, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Christ's one ambition, his one aim in life was to honor the Father, to please him in all that he did. God alone pleases God. That's the first and most most important principle that we need to remember concerning the pleasure of God. Secondly, the work of God's hands pleases God. The work of God's hands pleases God. You remember starting in the creation account, the Lord, after He created on each of those six days, He would say, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then as the consummation of His creation, once man was made, Adam and Eve, He looked at everything that He had made and He saw that it was indeed very good. He was pleased with the work of His hands. And that pleasure continues in the recreation, the redemption of fallen man. Now we come back to Isaiah again and to his prophecy of this one who would come and who would lay down his life for the sins of others, for the sins of the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have this regarding the pleasure of the Lord in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Who was it, friends, who crushed the Lord Jesus Christ? The Jews? Yes, in a sense. The Romans who put him on the cross? Yes, in a sense. But ultimately, who was it who crushed the Lord Jesus? The Father. God the Father did it. It was the work of His hand. And it pleased Him. And some respond negatively to this. There's an aversion to this idea that God would crush His only Son, His beloved Son, the the object of His love. Why would He do that? He has put Him to grief When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. God, in looking at Christ, saw his seed. The children of God represented by Christ on that cross. And because of that, because Christ's offering was the only remedy to rescue the people of God, God was pleased to bruise and crush his son because of what would come from that. 
He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Messiah's days. How did he do that? Because he didn't allow him to endure corruption in the ground, in the grave. He raised him from the dead on the third day and he vindicated the son because Christ had offered an acceptable offering to God. The the sins of the people for whom he died were paid for in full. God is satisfied. He raised his son from the dead. He prolongs his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's right. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands, the son's hands. This is why the Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. God loves and is pleased with the work of his hands. You remember in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is enjoining the people of God to mimic God, to imitate God. And he says in verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Have you thought about that? That Christ's offering of himself was a sweet-smelling aroma to God? That means pleasing to God. That which was delightful to God. Aromatic. Really, it was... This language of a sweet-smelling aroma is very reminiscent of the altar of incense in the tabernacle, right? This altar where Moses was commanded to take sweet spices, four in fact, and to mix them together in equal parts. These were aromatic gums or resins. And part of these four spices were to be beaten into a fine powder and then burned over fiery coals in this altar, which is what released this smoke, this incense, which smelled sweet to the Lord. What a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was bruised and crushed for us, beaten out as that fine incense, and then burned in fire, roasted as the Passover lamb for us as he endured our hell for us on the cross. What's so interesting about these spices and what was pleasing to the Lord is these spices were for the Lord alone. Anyone who tried to take those spices, copy them, and burn them for their own pleasure, God would cut off. He would kill. These spices were holy, set apart for the Lord. These spices alone could bring pleasure to God. Christ alone is what pleases, who pleases God. God is pleased with God, and God is pleased with the work of his hands alone. The third point is this. God is pleased with his work in his people. So here's the progression. God is pleased with God. God is pleased with the work of his hands alone. God is pleased with his work in his people. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50, starting in verse 7. This is a psalm of Asaph, and God is bringing his people into judgment with himself. He has something against them. He says in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. 
I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God is indicting his people for sacrifice. But not just sacrifice in the abstract. He, he doesn't fault them for not bringing sacrifices. They are bringing the, the, the blood of bulls and goats and they're setting it before him constantly. But there's something about the sacrifice that he's not pleased with. Look what he says in verse 14. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Offer to God thanksgiving. That's what he's interested in in terms of sacrifice. Don't bring the sacrifice for the sake of just bringing something to God. This must be brought to God with a heart, a heart that is thankful to God, that pays its vows to the Most High. This is the one who calls upon the Lord. Verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is one who has a relationship with the Lord, who knows him, who calls upon him in faith. Look at verse 23. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. You want to glorify God? What was it that Israel was lacking as they brought their sacrifices? Praise and thanksgiving from a pure heart, from a heart that he had given. This is the thing that God is interested in. Look at Psalm 51 with me. This is a Psalm of David. We read this this morning as our corporate reading. And this, uh, you know the context here is that this happened after Nathan the prophet went to David and prophesied against David for having sinned by taking another man's wife as his own, Bathsheba and committing adultery with her, and in the process, murdering her husband, Uriah, by putting him on the front line of battle. And David has this prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Look at verse 15 with me. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Open my lips, Lord. If you don't do this, I will not praise you. For you do not desire sacrifice, verse 16. So now we're getting into the pleasure of God. This is what matters to God. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. It's not the sacrifice for the sacrifice's sake that God cares about. In fact, there's, there's nothing that David knows that he can give that would please God. Else he would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering, but the heart that's behind the burnt offering. Loved ones, the principle here is that God <clears throat> does not accept the work of men's hands. He doesn't. 
There's nothing that David could give. There's nothing that we can give that will satisfy God, that will serve as a suitable sacrifice. And why is that? Hold your finger in Isaiah 51. We're going to come back here. But we just need to pair this with some instruction from Isaiah chapter 1. Or just listen with me. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11. This is the same discussion on sacrifice. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or, the, or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this notice from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. What a contrast! From that sweet-smelling aroma that the Son provides in His sacrifice, the sacrifice of these people is an abomination to Him. He hates it. It stinks to Him. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing, bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Here's the problem. God does not accept the work of men's hands because when he looks on us in our natural state, he sees blood. He sees blood guilt. He sees uncleanness. And he will not accept anything from those who are unclean. So he says in verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Stop doing what is evil and learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. I mean, how do you think the people responded when they heard this? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. This is like when God said in Deuteronomy chapter 10, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Cut away the hardness of your own heart. What should be the response of a reasonable, reasonably minded person? Lord, I can't. I cannot wash myself. Unless you wash me, I will be unclean. Unless you open my lips, I will not praise you. God, help me. The work of men's hands is never acceptable to God in and of themselves because God sees our guilt. When you are standing on your own two feet and not trusting in the Lord Jesus' righteousness for you, your hands are full of blood. You still have all your sins to deal with and you cannot wash yourself. You don't want to be in that position. So come back now to Psalm 51, verse 16. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God is interested in sacrifice, but the right kind. These are the sacrifices that matter to God. A broken spirit. That means a spirit that is shattered, literally like glass shattered, where it cannot be put back together by the efforts of men. 
And a broken and contrite heart, that is the idea of a crushed or collapsed heart. A heart that is lowly, that has been deflated, if you will. It's actually the word that is used that we heard in Isaiah 53 when he said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, to bring him low. Brothers and sisters, how often do we hear in liberal Christianity today, or even just pop Christianity, these notions that psychology has spun their web around with regard to brokenness? We are a broken people, they say, because we've made poor choices and we've been victimized by others. They don't see brokenness as a brokenness over sin like the Scripture describes it. David does not have a self-esteem problem. David is deeply broken over his own sin against God, committed by way of Bathsheba and Uriah. David has been shattered in spirit by his sin and crushed in his heart as he is convicted by his own sinfulness and his inability to restore himself. That is what we're talking about. And this is true for all of God's children. I mean, look at Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Isn't that something that we all can and should pray? This is not just a psalm of a man who has committed an extreme sin, and this is an extreme prayer of repentance for that extreme sin. This is the prayer of the man of God, who as he grows in grace, he sees even what we, even what he formerly considered a small, maybe insignificant sin as an adultery, as a murder against God. His own idea of his sin against God grows, and so he prays, God, be merciful to me. You are the one I've sinned against and done this evil in your sight. Now, how does this relate to these sacrifices? Well, the sacrifices of God, if they are in fact a broken spirit and a contrite heart, and we can't do this for ourselves. We can't wash ourselves. We can't contrive our own um, conviction over sin. The sacrifices of God are something that you can't give Him, but things that He must give you. The sacrifices of God are what He gives. Remember that conversation with Abraham and his son Isaac when he was going to the mountain to offer his son And the question was, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said to his son, My son, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. God always provides his own sacrifice, and he does this, loved ones, in the hearts of his own people. He creates the brokenness. He creates the the contrition of heart. And he says, These, O God, you will not despise. You won't think lightly of these. You won't trample these with your feet, God. These are the things that you care about. These are the things that you highly esteem. And then he says this, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. When the Lord speaks here, or when Isaiah speaks of doing good to Zion. He is not talking about the physical city of Jerusalem or Israel. Zion here is symbolic of Messiah. Because in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, 
the Messiah, who is the, the subject of that whole chapter, he is called the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. The Lord Jesus is the true Zion. And Zion also encompasses the people of God who inhabit the city of God. So this is really a picture of God dwelling with his people, Christ and his church. I want you to see this. This is in Revelation 21, you have a similar language with the holy city. You remember the vision that John has with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it's described not as a building, but as a bride. The bride comes down adorned for her husband. She is this great city, this holy Jerusalem, who is in union with her husband, the Lord Jesus So what is David saying here? I believe he is saying this, do good in your good pleasure to Messiah and to his bride, the people of God who inhabit him. Build the walls of Jerusalem. That's not physical walls. These are the walls of the bride. This is the structure of the church. This is the idea that Peter conveys in 1 Peter 2 when he says, coming to him as to a living stone, referring to the Lord Jesus Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's people are the ones who build the wall with themselves. God is actually building these walls with the people of God. One living stone at a time. We are becoming the wall. We are becoming this temple. The true temple. The true Jerusalem. David is saying, establish your church, O God. Build your people. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. Change them from dead, lifeless stones into living stones that build up your church. Give them new hearts. Give them hearts that acknowledge their own sin, that are broken over their sin, and hearts that delight to do your will. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar." Brethren, what bulls do we offer on the altar of God? Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I beg you, beseech you by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship, your reasonable service. Present your bodies. We are those bulls of Bashan, that were typed as animals, that are, we are laying down on the altar of the Lord, following in Christ's own example. He laid down His life for us, for our sins. We're not laying down our lives for sin. We lay down our lives in thanksgiving for what He's done for us in taking away our sin. Peter says it this way, we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, pleasing to God, through Jesus Christ, through Him. It's through the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, in our hearts, that we are able now for the first time to please God. That's the point. So what do we learn here? The sacrifices that He wants, that God really cares about, are the sacrifices that He alone could give. 
These are the things that he does in his people. A new heart and all that comes from it. Praise, thanksgiving, worship, laying down one's life for him on a daily basis. There is no work of man that he accepts. All of it is styled as filthy rags, worthless and actually reprehensible to God. He hates it. But the work of God in his people pleases God. Pleases God. There's one more indispensable element to pleasing God that I have to bring up. And there's much more. You could do a a long Bible study on pleasing God. But this one we have to turn our attention to. And it was implied in Psalm 50, Call on me in the day of trouble. Call on the Lord. What is it that pleases God? Faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 6, verse 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is what? God. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You must believe that he is God and that he will do what he promised as you seek him, which is he will grant you eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By faith, we are able to please God. And without faith, no man can please God. It's not possible. So you go back to the example of the religious moralist who thinks he pleases God by doing all these things for God. Maybe giving millions to the church or to good causes. Maybe holding Bible studies and and training and discipling hundreds or thousands of young people. Maybe it's starting orphanages, or or any other number of things. But if all those things are done without faith toward God, they're not accepted by Him. They're meaningless to Him. They're actually reprehensible to Him. Faith is what pleases the Lord. And He gives a couple of examples here, many examples, but just two I want to call your attention to. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. Abel testified that he was righteous by the gift that he brought to the Lord. Abel brought the right sacrifice, a sacrifice that was from the heart, not just the substance of what he brought, not just an animal, but the heart that was behind it. Because God looked on Abel and his sacrifice and was pleased with him. And he looked on Cain and his sacrifice and he was not pleased with Cain. And then verse 5, by faith, Enoch. (laughs) Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. This is an interesting case. Enoch was taken. He just was translated. One minute he was there and another minute he was gone. His body was taken because the Lord brought him to himself, brought him to heaven directly. He didn't see death. Why? He pleased God. How did he please God? Because he was a man of faith. He believed God. He knew God. He walked with God. That's what pleases God. Faith. How do we know that we have a, a genuine faith? Well, listen to 1 John chapter 3. Genuine faith always points to one person. It points to one person. John, 1 John 3, verse 22 and 23. 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. Here's what's pleasing in his sight. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. You don't want to know what's pleasing to God? Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the commandment. It's very interesting. This is John who uses the same style, the same format that the lawyer gave to Jesus when he asked him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said what? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here we have the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Here's the great commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. You want to know what it means to love God? Love Jesus Christ. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what is pleasing to God. There are many, many other things that Scripture says are pleasing to God that we can really even categorize under this heading of God's work in His own people. Um, Things which all flow from loving God supremely in Christ and loving neighbor as self. Fruitfulness in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God, growing in holiness, obedience to parents from a right heart, loving others, bearing each other's burdens, and it goes on. These are all the work of God in his people, and with these things he is well pleased because all these things are done in faith, a genuine faith. It may be a weak faith, brother and sister, but it's still done in genuine faith, and with that he is well pleased. I just want to close with this. Um, Romans 8.8, 8, we come back to that text here. It, Romans 8.8 8 is a negative statement, isn't it? So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, I think we can see why all cults, religions, belief systems that rely on the work of men, even in the smallest measure, are of no spiritual value to God. He's not pleased with them because he's never pleased with the work of men, only with himself, only with the work of his hands, only with the work of his hands in his people. Now look at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. What's the implication? You can and do please God because Christ is in you, if in fact He's in you. That's what's comforting to the child of God. And that's where we're going to go more next week. This sweet-smelling aroma that Christ gives to God, we are now enabled to give because Christ dwells in us. We read that this morning in our call to worship. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. Whose knowledge? The knowledge of Christ in every place. For we are to God, notice that, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. Even if you are the aroma of death to somebody who is dying, perishing because of their unbelief, God is pleased with you and your sacrifice in Christ. You are an aroma of Christ to him no matter what. No matter what kind of aroma you are to anyone else, whether it's life or an aroma of death. You are pleasing to God because Christ is in you.
God alone pleases God. The work of God's hands pleases God. God's work in his people pleases God. And you know what? Frankly, if you want to compress that down to just one idea for the day, it's the first one. God alone pleases God. Everything else can be summed up in that. Let us remember that, brothers and sisters. Let's remember that God pleases God and thank him and rejoice in him that he is at work in us today, accomplishing all his good pleasure, for he alone is worthy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, by way of just closing here, I, I, I thought of the benediction that you give in the end of Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.